Rupert Murdoch is uh, often thought of as one of the wealthy, wealthiest, one of the most influential business people to come out of Australia. And uh, look, I don't know whether Rupert Murdoch reads the Bible or not, but if he does, I'd have to be thinking that tonight's passage would, would probably be one of his favourites. I say that because a couple of months back, Rupert Murdoch used a public lecture to have a bit of a rant against what he saw as the increase of idleness in Australia. He warned about the danger we have in this country of basically having the bludger as a national icon, that bludging at work, bludging off the government is very much an accepted way of life, he reckons, in Australia. People who choose to go to Centrelink and get handouts rather than go out and get a job. And even those of us who do work, so often we're forever looking for new ways to get some sort of government assistance. Paid maternity leave, first homeowners grants, child allowances, uh, greater daycare subsidies. Uh, Mr Murgott pointed out that while, quote, a safety net is warranted for those in genuine need, we must avoid institutionalising idleness. Now, I don't know what you think about all that, but it's pretty similar to some of the stuff that the Apostle Paul says in our reading tonight, that in a lot of the verses that um, were just read for us, they're taken up with, with the Apostle warning against bludging. And there's strong warnings against bludging. Look at verse 6. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you. This is not a good idea. This is not a suggestion. This is not a personal preference. This is a must-do. Keep away from every brother who is idle and does not live according to the teaching you receive from us. Look at verse 11. We hear that some among you are idle. They're not busy. They're busy bodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down. Earn the bread they eat. Look at verse 14. If anyone doesn't obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of him. Don't associate with him in order that they may feel ashamed. They're strong words. I order you, don't bludge. And if someone else is bludging, don't have anything to do with them. Rip and Murdoch would love this. And yet, although there's a degree of similarity between what people like Rupert Murdoch and the Apostle Paul is saying here about idleness, I actually expect there's a world of difference as to why they are saying this sort of stuff. Let me show you what I mean tonight by firstly quickly reviewing what the Apostle Paul covers in tonight's passage before going just one step deeper and thinking about why he might be saying it. Firstly, what is it that Paul says in this final chapter of the letter? And really, you know, I've been chatting about the idleness thing, but of course there's sort of two main things that he addresses in this last chapter, aren't there? Firstly, he asks the Thessalonians for prayer for him. And then secondly, he targets this problem of idleness, a prayer and a problem. That's pretty well what's covered in this last chapter. And at first glance, they can seem pretty different sort of topics. I think we'll see that they're very closely linked. More of that later. Firstly, what is it that he says about prayer? First cab off the ring. Verse 1. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the message of the Lord may spread rapidly and be honoured just as it was with you. And pray that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not everyone has faith. If we will go around the room tonight and get prayer points, I reckon we get a heap of different ones, wouldn't we? Myriad of different topics. Health issues, uh, loneliness issues, uh, work issues, family issues. 
if the Apostle Paul was here, I'm, I'm thinking his overwhelming prayer request would be that the news about Jesus gets spread. Yes, he prays for personal safety there in verse 2, but I reckon it's only in the extent that so that he'll be kept safe for the opportunity to tell more people about Jesus. He wants the gospel to be spread. He wants the news about Jesus to be honoured. He wants people to become Christians. Literally, the passage says that the message of the Lord may run, which is a fantastic phrase, that the message may run. It's a bit like you know, the Olympic Games when the flame goes out from Greece and men and women with torches, they all run along passing that flame from one person to the next. Well, Paul is asking for prayer that the message about Jesus may run like that that the message may be passed along rapidly, that the flame, that the gospel will spread. Notice also that he asks for prayer for us, that the message of the Lord may spread. In other words, the message about Jesus just doesn't ooze out into the world by itself. People are involved in it. Paul's involved in it. We can be involved in it. You can be involved in it. You can be part of the chain of people passing along the message, helping the gospel run so that the message will keep on spreading. Now, look, there's more we could say about that. Uh, I'm actually going to skip over the next couple of verses. In some ways, they're a bit of a repetition of what we saw a few weeks back in Chapter 2 where he comforts the Thessalonians with the idea that God protects them. For now, though, just simply hold in your minds that when it comes to prayer requests, what Paul is asking for is that the gospel may run that the news of Jesus spread. What happens now, though, is you do get this rather abrupt change in topic from prayer to a problem, a problem of idleness in the church. The linking thought at first seems to be verse 4, where he mentions his confidence that the Thessalonians are going to do the stuff that Paul's commanded, but that sort of prompts him to zero in on one specific command, which a few people don't seem to be keeping, the command not to be a bludger, verse 6. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers, keep away from every brother who's idle and doesn't live according to the teaching you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We weren't idle when we were with you, nor do we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day, labouring, toiling, so that we wouldn't be a burden to any of you. We did this not because we didn't have the right to such help, but in order to make ourselves a model for you to follow. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule, if a man doesn't work, he shall not eat. Got to remember, this is written at a time when social welfare was unheard of. No Centrelink benefits happening in Thessalonica, but in a church like the Thessalonian church, who in chapter 1 we discovered were excelling themselves at loving one another, well, if someone in the church family was in need, then the brothers and sisters would chip in and help out. They'd rally around, they'd, they'd, they'd drop in casseroles, casseroles. They'd, they'd fill the car up with petrol, they'd, they'd buy new clothes for each other, exactly the sort of stuff that many of you in evening church are doing for one another. But it sounds like some people here in Thessalonica are taking advantage of this. They're presuming on the hospitality of their brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, in verse 8, Paul talks about being like him in the sense of not being a burden. And so we need to be clear here, Paul is not talking about people who would like to work but who can't work because they can't find a job. That's completely different. He's not talking about people who who 
can't work because of their age or can't work because of their health. That's different. What Paul's talking about here is laziness. This is about people relying on the help of others for stuff that they're quite capable of doing themselves. And Paul's advice, no, no, his command actually, is get off your backside and pull your weight. Verse 11, we hear that some among you are idle. They're not busy, they're busy bodies. It's a great line, that one. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus, settle down and earn the bread they eat. Friends, a lesson here surely is that we must not presume on each other in a church family. Let's be grateful and accept help when it comes, as it should in a church family. Let's even be prepared to ask for help when we need it. That's not a problem. But let's be careful we just don't fall into laziness and expect people to do things for us, especially if we are capable of doing them ourselves. Let's not assume that there is always someone else around to serve supper for us. Let's not always assume that there's someone else around to help on the rosters and clean the building and do the lawns and clean the bathrooms instead of us. Let's not presume that someone will always bring enough food to the meals for us. Let's look to help others rather than presume on others helping us. At the very least, that's what you can say here. But as important as that is in itself, I do want to go just one step deeper and ask the question, why? Why is this such a big thing for Paul? What's the big deal? Uh, Okay, he's given a prayer about spreading the gospel. He's had a bit of a go about pulling your weight. Why does he say this? Let me suggest it's got something to do with a fact that he has already mentioned back in chapter 1 and verses 6 and eight to 8. Come back with me just a page to chapter 1, verse 6 and 8. And a thought that has really pervaded and dominated the whole letter. Chapter 1, verse 6. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen... When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels, he will punish those who don't know God and don't obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Now it is that last verse in particular that I'd like us to linger over for a moment. He will punish those who don't know God and don't obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. He is, of course, talking about the day of judgment when Jesus Christ will return in his splendour. He's talking about that great day when the heavens and the earth will disappear in a roar. And the superannuation fund and your sporting trophies and the fashion wardrobe and the new computer and the music equipment and the CD, it's all going to go. And the issue that will be before us on that day is, do you know God? Have you obeyed the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ? That is the question virtually that is going to be put to you on that day by the risen Christ. Do you know God? Have you obeyed the gospel? It's a slightly surprising phrase, that last one, isn't it? You might expect Paul to have written that Jesus will inflict punishment on those who don't know God and who have not believed the gospel or perhaps who have not accepted Jesus as their Lord and Saviour, or or perhaps who have not responded to the gospel. 
It's a little unexpected using that word obeyed. Perhaps it's to teach us something, to teach us that obedience really is a very big part of responding to the gospel. Now, please don't misunderstand me here. We're not saved by obedience in the sense that we don't have to achieve a certain standard of behaviour to be saved. You and I aren't saved by doing things. We're saved by what Jesus Christ has done for us, what he's done for us on the cross. Obedience does not earn you a place in God's favour. We are saved by faith. But of course, obedience will reflect the genuineness of that faith, won't it? To say that we believe the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, yet at the same time to not be making efforts to obey Jesus, well, that's a nonsense, that's inconsistent, that's insincere. Authentic faith will always reveal itself in obedience to Jesus. And so on the last day, the issue will be, do you know God? Have you obeyed the gospel? of our Lord Jesus Christ? Did your lifestyle reflect an authentic following of Jesus? Does your lifestyle, has your lifestyle reflected a genuine trust in Christ? Because he did the things he said to do. Which brings us, I think, as to why Paul says the stuff he does in chapter 3, the prayer and the problem. I mean, I think they're all being driven by this fact that on Jesus' return, the issue will be, do you know God? Did you obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? Because think again about the prayer and the problem. He asked for prayer that the gospel will spread. Well, that's not surprising, is it? He's gripped by the idea that there will be a day when this creation will be folded up and God's going to line up everyone one by one and he's going to ask them, Do you know me? Do you obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus? And if that's what's going to happen, we must see that it's critically important for people to hear the gospel of the Lord Jesus. People's eternal destiny hangs on hearing hearing it. And, And so he asks for prayer that this might happen, that the gospel might run. Imagine being a student in a class. Imagine you're back at school, you're a student in a class. You're told that there's an exam coming up and the teacher even tells you what the exam question is going to be. But you don't bother telling your friend who was away that particular day when uh, that was announced. And so you keep going to school and sitting with your friend and having fun and talking about what's on telly and talking about where your sporting team's going, never bothering to mention that there's an exam coming up. Never thinking to say, oh yeah, and the question's going to be. You wouldn't do that to a friend. Paul knows that Jesus is coming back. And when he does, he's effectively going to be asking the question, do you know God? Have you obeyed the gospel of the Lord Jesus? Well, Paul's a good friend. And so he wants the gospel of the Lord Jesus to run. So he prays for it. And he asks for prayer about it. And then there's the whole idleness problem. And here again, it's not hard to see how it fits into this obedience to the gospel of Jesus, I suspect. I mean, the gospel of Jesus is nothing else if it's not about self-sacrificing love. It's about God serving us, Christ serving us. And so if we're to be authentic followers of Jesus, surely that's the sort of self-sacrifice and love that we'd be mimicking in our life, wouldn't it? Surely, if we're obeying the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, we'll be serving rather than being served. 
Surely we'll be happy to go out of our way for each other rather than expecting everyone else to go out of their way to suit us. Obeying the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ will mean at the very least, wouldn't it, it would certainly mean that we're not going to be wanting to be a burden on each other. We wouldn't want to presume on, on the others in this room. In 1 John 4 verse 8, God says, Whoever does not love does not know God. Did you catch that? Whoever doesn't love. If you don't love, you don't know God. And I'm wondering whether that's sort of the background sentiment here in, in this section of the final chapter. How can you say, how are you going to be able to say on that last day, you know God, when you've been taking brothers and sisters for granted? How can you say that you've been obeying the gospel of the Lord Jesus when you show no signs of the sort of love that Jesus had? When you don't show that in your own life. Friends, I'm suggesting to you that the way this chapter fits together is that it's about a prayer and a problem, and I, but I want to suggest that they are in fact very closely linked. I want to suggest to you that the background thinking that's going on in the Apostle Paul's head is that it, it's the return of Jesus. It, it, and it's doing things in the here and now because of that future great day. And therefore, can you see that even though there are people out there like Rupert Murdoch who are going to say very similar things to the Apostle Paul at this point, there are people out there who are going to talk about being idle, against being idle and are going to say, you know, we shouldn't bludge. But what they say may seem similar to this, but why they're saying it is very different. Because I suspect that business people like Rupert Murdoch, I don't want to misrepresent him, but I suspect that he's telling us not to be bludgers for the sake of for the sake of the country. We effectively said that in the lecture. He's saying that, you know, don't be a bludger for the good of the economy. And I suspect that a lot of business people, they want us to worship at the temple of the shopping mall. Paul's perspective is much bigger than that. He wants us to worship at the foot of the risen Christ. The Christ who is, who is coming back. All of which is taking us full circle to, to the way we kicked off this entire series a few weeks back in 2 Thessalonians. You might remember I actually shared that true story of uh, the woman on the Titanic who rushed from her life raft back to her room to grab three oranges. She pushed, pa- pushed past all the money and all the jewellery to get three oranges because she was convinced that because she was going to likely uh, run a, float adrift on the ocean, that those oranges were now the most valuable thing she owned. The nutritional value of those three oranges was what she needed more than anything else. And I wanted to suggest that that story reminds us that there are some things in life so powerful, so some events so enormous, that they will completely transform how you view things, how you value things. And ever since chapter 1, 2 Thessalonians has been telling us that the return of Jesus is one of those events. In chapter 1, we were reminded that because Jesus is coming back, a faith in Jesus is more critical than you can possibly imagine. It is through a faith in him that we're saved and glorified and and vindicated. And then in chapter 2, it went on to remind us that because Jesus is coming back, we need to hold firm to the teachings we've, we've received. We ought to be encouraged and strengthened by the way God has loved us in the past and the present and how he's going to love us into the future when, when we will get to share in the glory of the returning risen Christ. And here tonight, again in the final chapter, 
I want to suggest to you at least that we are again seeing how the return of Jesus shapes what we do and what we pray. Because Jesus is coming back, friends. Are you aware of that? He's coming back. And we want to meet him as fully devoted followers of his. We want to be part of that family reunion. And in the light of that, the decisions that we make in this life, they they are suddenly all put in context because you come to a decision in your life. Do I marry this person? Do I marry that person? Uh, Do I go for this job? Do I apply for this job? Do I buy this new thing? Do I not buy it? You come to a choice and you take the direction that will take you to your destination. You make the choice that will best prepare you for meeting Jesus. Because he's coming back. And you may not know the exact date, but we know he's coming. And friends, we even know what he's going to do when he gets here. He's going to punish people who don't know God and don't obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we pray that the gospel will run. And so we obey that gospel because we don't want to be a burden on each other. I'll pray. Father God, thank you for this part of your word. Thank you for the way this little letter uh, reminds us of the big event of Jesus' return. Father, we pray that we also would be gripped by the importance of the gospel of Jesus Christ running and spreading throughout our friends and family and throughout this community, throughout this nation, throughout this world. And Father, we'd also like to ask that you would help us, by your word and spirit, be obedient to the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, that we would live out our trust in Jesus in real and loving and self-sacrificing ways. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.